All right, so last week we, we went through chapters one through four and the end of chapter four, the very end, what we saw was Jesus saying that he needed to go into other towns and continue doing what he had begun. We talked last week about the beginning of his ministry, how, how Jesus was coming with a message and he was coming with a mission. He was coming with a message, the good news of the gospel, and he was coming with a mission to seek and to save. All right, that's what, we, that's what we drew from that. And at the end of chapter four, he says, I need to go to the other towns. I still have this message. I still have this mission and I need to start moving forward with it. And so chapter five, where we start here today, begins with Jesus doing that very thing. Now here's the thing, even though that we're clear on what Jesus's message was, the good news, and that he had this mission to seek and to save, the, the thing that, that was different about Jesus was his method. Now, there had been lots of believers and teachers and rabbis and philosophers and uh, all these people that had these great ideas that had come onto the scene at different times throughout history. But Jesus came with a method that was unexpected. Even for the Jews who had been waiting for a person to come as the Messiah, to come and, and restore Israel and to, to do the work of God. They expected a Messiah. They didn't expect someone to come like Jesus did. And the first few stories from this chapter that we're going to overview, chapter 5, the first few stories show him seeking out unlikely people. This was not the, the people that you would expect someone who's coming to build a kingdom, the kingdom of God, would, who, they, they would be seeking out these people. But he did, he sought out unlikely people and he offered them a different life. One of the first things that we see in, in chapter five is he calls Peter, the disciple Peter, to become a, a, a follower. And he caused him to lead his old life, leave his old life as a fisherman behind to follow him. Now, Nothing against fishermen um, or commercial fishermen as Peter was. Had a little, a little business, a little fishing business on the, the shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. Nothing against him, but that's probably not where some military general would show up looking for his next, you know, person to raise up. It wouldn't be the spot where the, the entrepreneur said, oh, I've got to go find an expert in this business field. I'll, I'll go look for the fishermen. This isn't where even some, some uh, leader of a, of a religious movement would necessarily go to say, where are the most spiritual people? Obviously, they're by the sea. I'll find a fisherman. This, this wouldn't have been expected. And then we see Jesus in that same chapter begin to, to minister to unlikely people. If he's coming to make the, the great thing, the, the move of God, the kingdom of God come from heaven to earth, you would think he's going out there looking for the superstars, looking for the talent, trying to gather those people around him and build up his team to do some amazing things. But instead, one of the first things we see is he goes to a fisherman. And then after that, he goes to a person who's suffering from leprosy. Now, leprosy was an incurable disease at that time. And lepers were pushed to the farthest fringes of society because if you came close to a leper, you could end up with leprosy. So lepers couldn't go to the store like everyone else. They couldn't go to the synagogue and worship like everyone else. They had to live in their own little houses. Even if they had been married and had a family, they've got to pull out of their house and go somewhere way away. Jesus, though, doesn't avoid them. 
he actually goes to a leper and heals a leper. Then after that, we see him healing a man who is paralyzed. And not only that, even forgiving this man's sins. So he's now ministering to their physical needs, but also to their spiritual needs. At the end of chapter 5, we see him call Matthew, who was also on the fringe. He was a despised tax collector. The Jews hated these guys. They were Jews that were working for Rome. And that is not what the Jews wanted. They wanted to be independent and have their own nation and their own government. And here's one of their own that basically was a traitor, seen as a traitor because he was working for Rome as a tax collector. And Jesus goes and calls him. So do you see what's happening here? It's, it's not the group of people that you would expect that he's gonna build this Fortune 500 company with. But when questioned about that, because all of the religious people around were like, Jesus, you're coming to bring the, this good news that you're telling us about, that the kingdom of God is here, but you're going to all these losers. You're going to all these people that we don't really care about. You're ignoring all the people that really matter, that can really get some momentum going for you. What are you doing? And in Luke 5, 31, Jesus answers them. And he says this, it says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came with the message, he came with the mission, but his method was coming to those who were sinners, not the righteous. And that was a new thing. This was not the way that the religious people had done things in the past. The religious of the time would look for other devout people, other righteous people, and they rejected the people that weren't. They expected the Messiah to come, but what they expected was this powerful empire that would be built on the strength of the nation, not the weakness of the nation. And Jesus came seeking those that the religious had rejected. He wasn't looking for the best and the brightest. He was coming to the bent and the broken. He offered salvation to those on the outside of the religious circle as well as those on the inside. Now, when you're, you're going through this gospel of Luke, and I told you last week that Luke was writing this for people that were outside of the, the Jewish culture. Matthew wrote a gospel for the Jews, but Luke is writing it for Gentiles. And a Gentile was just anyone who was not a Jew. All right, and as, as Luke's going through here, he's, he's true to the story. Jesus' ministry began to Jews, almost exclusively to Jews. All right, all 12 of the disciples were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Mary and Joseph were Jews. All of the characters from that early stage of his life were Jews. But he also, though, was going to those on the fringe. Now, here's what you need to know about being Jewish. Being Jewish was more than just a religion or a faith for these people. Being Jewish, still to this day, is very cultural. It is your entire culture. You are born a Jew. It's not that you decide you can. There are conversions to Judaism. But, but for the most part, to be a Jew is everything about you. You go to Jewish schools, you go to Jewish stores. It's, it's, it's a cultural thing. We actually see a similar thing that the, the Christianity in America is wrestling through right now. Because Christianity has been so widespread throughout this nation 
that many people just assume, well, if I'm born in America, then I'm, I'm automatically a Christian because it's a Christian nation. So that equals American equals Christian. <laughs> but what have we seen over the past several years where people are realizing, wait a minute, this isn't, these things don't all line up. This isn't the way it is. Christianity is a faith. It's a belief and it's a belief system. And just because you were born in a country that is surrounded by other Christians does not mean that you are a Christian. You're not born into it. It's a choice. And these people, they were born into their Judaism. They were Jewish by birth. But for many of them, they were pushed to the edge of their society because of poverty or illness or low esteemed occupations. And Jesus came to those people first. To the Jews, but to the the, the ones on the outskirts of society. It was the way he was going to begin building his kingdom. In Matthew 20, 16, Jesus said that particularly. He said, the last will be first and the first last. This is how I build my kingdom. These are the people that I come to, the bent, the broken, the sinner. Now, in chapter six, So that's chapter five. There's your overview of chapter five. Chapter six, Jesus continues to minister in this unconventional way. He he does this by breaking some things that are very important to the Jews and the cultural Jews. He starts breaking some of their traditions. And he doesn't start with a little tradition. He goes for a big one. He starts breaking some of the rules of the Sabbath. Now, you've got to understand a little bit about what Jews believed. God gave the Jews the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, one of those things was about the Sabbath. God says in one of the Ten Commandments, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, there's a lot of other things that God said, this is how you're going to worship and this is how you're going to do things. And he built this elaborate system of sacrifice where they would sacrifice animals for sins. And there's, there's a lot of details involved in that. But the Jews over the centuries, uh, because that goes all the way back to Moses, but now we're up here to, to Jesus's time. Over the centuries, the Jews continued to refine all of the rules of their faith. And the rules got really big. In fact, uh, God gave them 10, but by the time of Jesus' day, there's 613, (laughs) okay, specific rules. And in fact, what they did was they built rules to protect them from breaking the rules, all right? It was like a secondary line of defense. They said, if God says we've got to keep the Sabbath holy, then what does holy mean and what does that going to look like? And so we need to build a whole bunch of rules to back up so that even if we were to break those, we'd still have a big gap in between where we'd never actually break the law that Jesus has. It sounds like if we've got a couple of attorneys in here, it sounds like some of the documents that you get across your desk, right? With a rule after rule after rule. And if this rule happens and that rule happens and you got to do this for that rule so this rule doesn't, you know, that's what had happened. And so with that, they had built all these elaborate rules regarding the Sabbath. Like they told you how many steps you could take in a day. They they told you what you could cook or couldn't cook. You couldn't light a fire on the Sabbath because that would actually be doing work. Well, you're like, well, how am I going to cook my food? Well, you got to cook it the day before and prepare for the Sabbath so that it works that way. Unless... There's a way that you can keep the fire burning all night long and then you didn't light the fire. The fires continued to go. And so there's all these rules. 
All right? And in, in chapter 6, we see Jesus and his disciples walking through a field on the Sabbath. The guys are hungry. They're walking through a grain field, and the stalks of grain are growing up around them. And all they do is they take a little ear of grain, rub it in their hands, and pop in a little snack. But by taking your two hands together and rubbing them on the little stalk of grain to get the seeds out, the Jews said that was work. And if that was work, you just broke the law. And you don't want to break the law if you're a Jew. All right? That's one of the places. But what does Jesus say? He says, no, no, no. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Your tradition has got things turned around. All right? Not only that, you might think this one's kind of ridiculous too. If you read this, you saw this. Jesus comes into the synagogue. Okay? He comes to church. And when he comes to church, there's a man who comes in who has a, it says, a withered hand. He has no use of one of his hands. Now, Jesus, doing what Jesus does in the power of the Holy Spirit, has the ability to heal people. That's one of the things that he does. And so this man comes forward with a withered hand, and all of the religious people, the people that are checking the law, they're like, oh, he's not going to heal that guy right now, is he? Because if he heals that guy, that's work. You're like working like a doctor. That's, that's, medical, that's medical practice. That's a, you're breaking the Sabbath. And not only are you breaking the Sabbath, you're breaking the Sabbath in the synagogue. That like breaks another couple of our rules. And Jesus looks at these guys and he's like, what are you thinking? Are you telling me that it's better to me, for me to let this guy leave and go on about his life without the use of his hand? It's better that I do that instead of healing him because you have a rule that says I can't do this on the Sabbath. And so what's Jesus do? He heals the man. And the man, it's the best Sabbath day of his life. <laughs> but everybody, these, these religious leaders, it, it, it bothers them. In fact, not only does it bother them and upset them, it starts to infuriate them because they are law-abiding Jewish leaders. But you have to understand, guys, their lives were built on these rules. This was what pro provided stability for them and direction for them. And they just liked things to be the way that they were taught that it was supposed to be. Some of you are probably that way. You have your rules, you have your routines, you have your systems, and you don't like it when those things get messed up. Some of you are like, rules, routines, systems? No, never. <laughs> But that's how these people were. They had these rules. And Jesus was disrupting their system. It was revolutionary, but he was also threatening. And he was turning their kingdom, their kingdom on its head. And at the end of chapter six, Luke includes some of these teachings. Again, teachings that were so just outlandish to these people. Um, and, and we've studied these before. We went through the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount that is there, that's where we have the Beatitudes, where he, Jesus has a bunch of these different sayings that he has. You see some of those, and you saw some of those as you read through Luke. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is actually the Sermon on the Plain. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, they were up on a mountain here. They're actually in a flat area where he's teaching this. But some of those, uh, those, those things came out of that. Things like loving your enemy and not judging others. Some of those statements, all right? But Jesus, as he's doing this, he's undercutting the foundations of what they believed. But here's the thing. He wasn't doing this to hurt the Jewish leaders, 
He wasn't trying to start a fight. Remember, the reason Jesus was here, the reason he came with the message was to fulfill his mission. And his mission was to seek and to save. And sadly, the, the traditions that these people had held for so long, those traditions were incompatible with his mission because their religion couldn't save them. If the Jews could have been saved by just holding fast to their rules, Jesus would have said, great, go with it. You guys can make, you can be righteous on your own. You can follow your rules. You can set up your systems. Everything will be fine. See you in heaven at the end of your life. If that's, if that could do that, if the law could save, Jesus would have never come to earth. He would have never had to die on the cross. Maybe he would have done that still for all those of us who never knew the law. I don't know. But it it wouldn't work that way. And so Jesus knew, I'm gonna have to rattle some cages. I'm gonna have to break some rules. I'm gonna have to expose some traditions here because these things aren't going to save. And I'm here to save. Sadly, that's still the problem with legalistic religion today. Religion that believes that salvation or whatever the religion, the highest goal of the religion is, maybe it's nirvana or love or freedom, whatever it is, a legalistic uh, religion rests in the established rules and how well someone follows them. Because in any religious system, if you follow the rule to the T perfectly, then you're therefore righteous in that system. But that wasn't Jesus's message at all. His message was that though sins, our sins had separated us from God, God had a plan for restoring that relationship. A plan that did not involve us having to get our stuff together. Instead, he came perfectly and said, I will make a way for you. We are just called to receive that. And to confirm this message, he came with an authority and a power that had never been seen. These weren't just moral ideas that Jesus came with or philosophical concepts. Jesus came in power. And that's what you see through this gospel. That was important for Luke to bring up and to write down. He says, you don't understand. Jesus just didn't come up preaching sermons like I'm doing. He came through with power and he was impacting people incredibly and lives were being changed. Now, when we come to chapter seven, Because of these unexpected methods, as Jesus begins doing these things, because it was unexpected, people throughout the land, these Jews that had been expecting a Messiah for hundreds of years, these Jews were really wondering, well, is this Jesus guy that we keep hearing about, is he the Messiah or not? Because he's not doing things the way we expect him to do things. He's not following the rules that have been passed down from all the generations. He's a Jew like us, but he's not doing these things. Can he be? Is this the way it is supposed to be? Even John the Baptist was confused. John the Baptist, if you read Luke chapter one, John the Baptist who had a prophetic calling on his life from before he was even born. (laughs) Remember with Zechariah and Elizabeth? John the Baptist was the one who God put in his mouth from a very early time. You are gonna be my prophet that goes and prepares the way for the Messiah. 
And John the Baptist came on the scene and that's what he knew he had to do and that's what he did. He tells everybody, repent, the Messiah is on the way and my job is to prepare his way. John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus. John the Baptist is the one who got the prophetic word when he saw Jesus. He's like, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I mean, John the Baptist, if anybody's gonna be dialed in and know this is the Messiah, it's gotta be John the Baptist. But even John at this point, he's like, wait a minute, Jesus, you're doing things in ways that I don't understand. Is this okay? And so John actually sends some of his disciples to ask him. He says, guys, go ask Jesus if he's actually the Messiah or if we're supposed to wait for somebody else. And Luke records uh, the conversation that Jesus has with those disciples. And it reiterates what we saw last week in the prophecy of Isaiah. And in Luke 7, here's what Jesus says to John or to, to his disciples to tell John. He says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. And what are some of those things? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers, incurable disease, are cleansed. They're healed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Guys, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Essentially, he told them to go report what's happening so that John could decide. That's what Jesus does. That's important because even though the message of Jesus is delivered, it's up to every person to decide whether or not to put their faith in that message. And every one of you who is a Christian here today, that was a decision that you made. You weren't born into it. Your family may have been Christian. But if in order to become a Christian, you decide if you're gonna put your faith in that message or not. Jesus allows for that sense of discovery. Now, the story that we're gonna study here today is at the end of this chapter, in chapter seven. And it's a beautiful illustration of Jesus's ministry as he's moving through these people in unexpected ways. And it is, it's unexpected and it's also deeply impacting. So let's read this together in your Bibles, Luke chapter seven. We're gonna start reading in verse 36. Okay, are you there? Verse 36, Luke seven, verse 36. Here we go. Here's what it says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. A Pharisee is the religious leader, the religious leaders we've been talking about, right? And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's kind of a weird phrase, but that's what they did back then. Instead of sitting at a table, they reclined. They were low tables and they kick back, all right? He comes in and he reclines at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, okay? Like a perfume or a, a fragrant oil. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, let's, let's keep going. Actually, let's keep going here. And, and Jesus, in verse 40, and Jesus answering, you can't think too much in your head with Jesus 
because he can actually answer what you just thought in your head. (laughs) But that's what happens here. It says, and Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarius, which is a single of a denarii, um, a denarius was a day's wage at the time, all right? So to give you like some reference here, if today's going rate for minimum wage is $15 an hour, all right? And a day's wage, if it's at eight hours, that's $120. All right, so a day's wage would be one denarius is $120. And one of them here um, owes him 50. So if you do the math there, that's $6,000. And the other one owed him 500, that's $60,000. All right, so that gives you something to hold on to. A, a, lender, a lender comes to these guys, one owes him 6,000, one owes him 60,000, all right? Let's go on. And it says, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, that's not too hard for us to figure out. If I had two checks here today, which I don't, one for $6,000 and one for $60,000, and I come up to Maggie and I hand her $60,000, And then I come over here to George and I hand him $6,000. Which one's going to love me more? Well, depending, you know. (laughs) Hopefully they'll both still love me. But George is probably like, hey, why don't I get six when Maggie got 60, (laughs) you know. There's some of that that's going to be going on. And so that's what Jesus says. He says says here in in, um, verse 42, he says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt. Now, which one will love him more? And 43, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, look at this part. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Okay, now, now you know that the, the Pharisee, Simon here, he's, he's a little suspicious. He's like, all right, he set me up here. He asked me a really easy question. I got that one right. But now what's he asking me? Do you see this woman? Of course I see this woman. She's in my house. I don't know how she got here. She just wandered her way in and this is weird. And okay. I entered your house, he says there in verse 44. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, understand here culturally what's going on. In, in this day and age, um, these were dirt roads, dirt roads and open toed shoes, okay, sandals. <laughs> and if you're out in the city and the town walking around, your feet would be, feet would be filthy. And especially the cultural uh, kind of tradition here is, especially for a, a really um, honored guest. You've got this special guest coming over to your house. What would happen is the host, they would want to go out of their way to make that honored guest feel really special, like you're coming into my house. And so typically what would happen is they would have water there, maybe even a servant to wash the feet of the person that came in the front door. You know, they'd be waiting at the door already. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Here, we've got a servant here. They're going to wash your feet. And not only that, then the formal greeting of, you know, a a kiss on each cheek, welcome to our house. We're so glad you're joining us here today. It's an honor to have you here. 
And then this anointing that he's talking about, they would also bring out some good smelling perfume and say, I know it's been a long travel out here in the stinky street, you know, here, here, put this on your head, you know, get refreshed, be ready. We're so glad you're here. You're honored. That's what he's describing here. He says, look, I came and you didn't do any of those things for me. You, you welcomed me into your house, but it's not like, whoa, special guest treatment, all right? And in verse 47, here's what he says. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, we find two characters here. Aside from the, the, the group of people that are also gathered. And, and the two characters here are Simon and this woman. And they're on each end of the spectrum from a spiritual standpoint. One we might view as a saint. One was a sinner. And each one of them approached Jesus in a very different way. Think about the woman here with me for a minute. First off, what you can see from the woman is utter humility. She's not coming in here in, with any sort of pride. She's walking into a place that she hasn't been invited to, into a house of people that she may or may not know, and she comes in and she loses it. <laughs> she is weeping. She is broken. She's falling at this guy's feet. She's wiping his dirty feet with her hair and with her tears. What about this woman? She's heard about Jesus, obviously. She's heard his message and of the salvation that he's bringing to others. And she had to see, would he maybe save me as well? She needed to be freed from her guilt, the guilt that she carried. And that's what we see here. This woman carried an emotional and spiritual burden. We don't know all the details, but it sure doesn't seem that she had some sort of a physical need. It doesn't tell us that she was blind or that she was deaf or had leprosy. No, we don't see any of that, but we see a weight on this woman when she comes in here. She wasn't blind or deaf, but she needed healing in her soul. And when she crashes this dinner party, she's just overwhelmed with emotion and grief. She falls at his feet and anoints him with this perfume. What was she doing? She's pouring out everything she had, just pouring it out, hoping that Jesus might help her. But then we have Simon on the other hand. Now, before you, you get too hard on Simon, and, and let me tell you this, we have a bias, a reading bias when we read the Bible. Because we know what the Pharisees ultimately would do to Jesus, if you, know, if you know the story. And so when you see the word Pharisee, a lot of times it's kind of a dirty word. You're like, oh, the Pharisee, one of those guys. <laughs> but realize, for the most part, even with a person like Simon here, he was probably a pretty good guy. He invited Jesus to his house for a meal, for one thing. And for the most part, Pharisees were well-respected, they were well-educated, they were well-off, upstanding citizens of the community. And it seems that Simon genuinely wanted to get to know Jesus and understand what he's doing. 
That's why he invited him over. He sees, wow, Jesus is doing this and it's not the way I'd expect, but I, I, I need to learn myself. I'm gonna invite him to dinner and try to figure this guy out and understand what's going on here. Some people had said that Jesus was a prophet. And so when this woman comes in, he's like, well, is he a prophet? And for Simon, he's like, well, I have an idea of what a prophet should be like. And, and, and he's confident here. He says, well, if he was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. And this is not the sort of a woman that a respectable man should be hanging around with. But even after that happens, we still see respect from Simon when Jesus says to him, hey, I've got something to say to you. What does Simon say? He says, please speak it, teacher. And uses that term of respect as teacher, rabbi, teach me, tell me, what, what is it? And I think that the lesson that Jesus taught to all those in the house that evening is very important for us to learn as well. Here's what I want you to do as you think about this story. Try to put yourself in the story. Put yourself in the story. Who do you identify with most in that story? Maybe ask yourself this question. What were you like when you first met Jesus? Did your life more resemble the kind of self-righteous Pharisee or was it the broken, wild and broken um, woman? Now, it might surprise you um, that we have a good blend of both those sorts of people in our church. I have the, the privilege of being a pastor, of hearing a lot of details of people's stories that not everybody gets to hear. And when you come to church, a lot of times you look around at the other people and you're like, okay, well, they're church people. They definitely have their stuff together or whatever it is, maybe. And, you know, Jesus really fixed them up and they're all clean and shiny and everything's good. Boy, if they knew what was going on in my head and my heart. <laughs> but that's not true. <laughs> it's just the fact that we, we sometimes give people the benefit of the doubt. That's what happens. But that's not the way it is. We've got people from both ends of that spectrum. God calls all from everywhere and he brings them together and builds them all up. Now, what I want you to recognize in this is that in the story that Jesus tells about the the lender and the debtor, notice that both people, and he says it there, both people were debtors. Both owed something. One owed owed 6,000, one owed 60,000. But they were both debtors and neither of them could pay. As we take this into the spiritual realm and we look at this, what it's describing is both people were sinners. One might have had big sins and one might have had little sins, but they're both sinners. Both were in need of a savior. Uh, if if uh, you were with us last year at our fall retreat, this might bring back to your memory what we studied about the prodigal son. And as we looked at the prodigal son, we found out it's actually prodigal sons because both of the sons were were separated, estranged from their father. One out of self-loathing and the other out of self-righteousness, but both of them needed a savior. This is the same thing that we see here in this teaching that Jesus describes. Both people were debtors. Both needed to be saved. And this is an important point for us to understand. Big sins... And little sins are both sins. They're all sins. The big ones, the little ones. The big, scary, nasty, violent ones. And the little, small, innocuous ones. It's all sins. And the difference between Simon's sins and this woman's sins seemed pretty obvious. She knew she was a big-time sinner. 
Everyone in town even knew she was a big time sinner. Simon, though, he thought he was a small time sinner. But what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us that all sins lead to death. Romans 3, 9 and 10 says, All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's all of us. This goes back to our heritage to the first human beings. Sin is in our nature. We are all sinners. And all sin leads to death. If eternal life then is for the righteous, then one tiny sin ruins your righteousness. So every sin matters. I know we don't think of it that way. We just think, well, as long as I don't kill anybody, I should make it in all right. But that's not the way it works. Every sin matters. And and when you hear the gospel message, the message is that Jesus came to put his righteousness upon us. That's the only way we end up righteous is because of what Jesus does for us. He was the only one who could pay the debt that we all owe. He did the work that we could not do and offers us eternal life and and to all that would put their faith in him. That is why Jesus can forgive sins. The people around the table are like, who is this guy who can forgive sins? He's the perfect one. He's the righteous one. He's the one without sin. That's why Jesus could say to her, your sins are forgiven Your faith has saved you, go in peace. And this wasn't just her issue. This is us. Listen to to Ephesians chapter two, verse one to seven. And you, 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 you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is who we are when we are in him. But here's the thing. The size and shape of your sins is actually not what I want us to focus on today. It's our response to the forgiveness of those sins. How do you respond to that truth? I hope when you hear that description of you, of being one who's been saved and forgiven and transformed with an eternal inheritance, I hope that brings something up in you. Because if it doesn't, you've got to ask yourself, well, do I have that inheritance, number one? And number two, well, do I just not understand what it is that's so good about this? And that's where I think a lot of people are. The response. Their debts were different, Simon and this woman. But so was their response to Jesus. Think about that a little bit. The woman, she knew her sins were big sins. She knew I am, this is my only hope. I'm not gonna be forgiven probably in this lifetime. 
I'm never gonna change my reputation in the eyes of my town and my village and my nation. But maybe, just maybe, this Jesus who brings this message of salvation, maybe that's for me. She knew it. And those sins had been crushing her, weighing down on her. Her only hope was Jesus. Now, I think, and this is speculation here, I think that when the woman comes here into Jesus, I don't think she's actually coming here and asking for salvation. I have a feeling that she had heard Jesus preach out in the open air somewhere in town. I think she had heard his message where Jesus brought this message and said, sins can be forgiven. Every sin can be forgiven. And she heard that message and she's like, that sounds way too good to be true, but I need that. I want that. Yes. And Jesus says then and there, your sins are forgiven if you would put your hope in, 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 in salvation that God's offering. And I think she did that. But even then, I think she, she goes home and she's thinking, ah, is that really true? Could he have meant me? I know he was preaching that to a crowd. I'm not positive. I gotta go find out. I'm gonna go ask him. I heard he's at this house. I'm gonna show up. And I don't know what else to do, but this stuff smells good. I'm bringing it with me. <laughs> And she comes in and she's ready to ask and then she just breaks and she's like, I can't even get a word out. And I just, just gosh, and this is why Jesus then looks at her and says, no, you, your sins. And, and just so you know that I know who you are, I'm gonna tell Simon, yeah, her sins are great. Her sins are many. There's a mess going on in that soul. But even her sins are forgiven. And so he turns to her again and says, your faith has made you well. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that powerful? It's a powerful event. She heard the good news and now she's expressing her love and her gratitude. That's why she's doing what she's doing. That's why she's pouring this out on Jesus' feet. She recognizes what she's been saved from. Simon on the other hand, he didn't really understand the weight of his own sin. And we don't know if Simon became a believer or not. We don't know any of that. But he thought that his own righteousness was enough. But it never is. No matter how good of a person you are, the best among us all, your own righteousness is never enough. So my question for you here today is the, the same one that Jesus asked Simon. Do you see this woman? What he's asking is, do you see what's really going on? He's not saying, do you actually see the woman who came into your house? He's not saying, hey, Simon, didn't you lock the front door? There's a woman in here. Do you see this? <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do you see what's happening here? Do you see what has happened in her heart and in her soul? Do you see why she's doing the things that she's doing? Has this sunk in yet to you? Do you see it? Read again what he says in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. But here's the issue with that. There is no little forgiveness for sin. Every sin, big and little, leads to death. And every sin, big or little, required Jesus' death to cover for those sins. So my question, as we think about this, do you express your love for Jesus in a way that really represents the great forgiveness that we've received? 
How does that actually impact your life? As James is up here leading us in worship today and he's talking about, he's, he's pouring out his heart. He's pouring out his life. He's saying, you can raise your hands. You can sing out. You can declare what Jesus has done for you. Can you do that? Are you, do you allow yourself to actually do that? That's what that woman did. If that woman came in here to church, she'd be like, what's up with the crazy lady? I mean, she's like down here on her knees and tears and hands high and singing out so loud, right? Because she knows what she's been forgiven and she pours it all out. There is no little forgiveness for sin. And all of us who are forgiven have received eternal life. That should ignite our hearts. It should light us up to worship. It should light us up to serve, to sacrifice, and to love. 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our, down our lives for the brothers. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what this woman was doing. She was pouring everything out at the feet of her savior. And I'll tell you the truth. I want to love Jesus in a way that is deserving of his glory and honor. I want to. I want to respond to Jesus in a way that's fitting. But a lot of times I don't. But sometimes I need to hear a message like this to shake me up again and say, what is it that I'm doing? Am I just going through my routine and you sit down at a meal? Hey, thanks God for the food. All right, here we go. Do I come to church and I'm like, oh, Jesus, he's so great. He's so awesome. Yeah, sing the next song. I like that one better. Is that what I'm doing? Or am I like, no, I'm here to worship. I'm here to worship the God of the universe who loved me and saved me and changed me. That should do something <laughs> in me. I want to love much because I have been forgiven much. And I want us to be a church that sees what God has done and shouts it out. The world needs Jesus. I'm gonna finish with this verse. First Thessalonians 3. Here's what, here's what the apostle Paul is writing as he's praying this for this church, the, the church in Thessalonica, but he's praying it for our church here today as well. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. How do you, how do you respond to a message like this today as we finish and James and the worship team, you guys can come on up. I don't recommend that you dwell on the sins that Jesus has forgiven. Okay, that's one thing that you could do. You could say that this woman was weeping because she was just thinking about all the bad stuff she'd done in her life. But I don't think that that's what we're supposed to do. There's some good time to have good self-reflection and recognize that that was a bad path. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. But that's not where Jesus calls us to stay. Where he calls us to stay is to, to, to dwell on the forgiveness that we've been given and the hope that we have and the salvation that is to come. The sins that he's wiped away are in the past. You've been made clean. Remember the great sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. 
And the the question of all this for us all is, how do we respond to that forgiveness? That salvation in our everyday life. How do you respond in your worship? How do you respond with your love? How do you respond with your service? And if there's no response in your life, if none, if you think about that and you're just like, well, I, I don't. If there's nothing, then it's, it's time to really dive into the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. Have you put your faith and trust in him? Has he forgiven your sins? Has that weight been removed? And if not, today's the day to do that. And I just pray that God would let us truly see him and see what he has done in our lives here today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I cannot help but say thank you, Jesus, for salvation. I, like all my brothers and sisters here in this room, was dead in my sin. And there was no hope beyond this broken life for me. But that did not satisfy your heart, Father. You did not want humanity, your beloved creation, to be lost. So instead, you sent your only son to come and seek and to save those who are lost. And Lord, for those of us in this room here today that are those people that are saved, Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would open us up to be able to express that. That you would allow that truth, that light that has been lit in our hearts to shine out to others. We are the people with your message now. We are the people with the mission that we've picked up from Jesus. And we are those that should be pouring out ourselves to those around us, bringing the good news of salvation. Lord, we know right now, physically, we're surrounded by houses sitting here in this gym, in this park here today. And so many of the people around us, the neighbors around us right here do not know you. And yet you have offered them eternal life and salvation and freedom and deliverance and healing and wholeness and abundant life. And so Lord, we just pray for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with them. We pray that your your power would go out through us to others, that our lights would shine to all those around and that Jesus would be glorified and lifted up and that we would become a people that overflows with worship, that overflows with service and generosity and care and love. We are people that have been forgiven much. May we be people with much love. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.